Grace Simons stands tall in every aspect that makes a great athlete and a great wrestler and a great person. Grace Simons will always be one of the all-time greats. He dominated everybody. He won every national tournament he was in. Won four NAI championships, three NCAA championships. He'd have been a four-timer had he been eligible. There was nobody could stay with him. He was known to be the best 118-pounder in the country. And there was no one else to match him to, to make two Olympic teams. He could have made a third Olympic team, but he, he decided he did not want to give up his time with his team. I'd work out with him anytime I could, and of course he could beat anybody from his weight all the way through heavyweight. Gray took wrestling to another level. The greatest wrestlers, you would teach them one hold, and they would come back and show you 10 different ways to do that one hold. They would be innovators. I would not go on the mat unless he was in my corner. He'd be patient, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're taken down and you're, 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 you're down and you're on your back. That's how great it was in practice. And then he would, uh, he would laugh. I'm Jason Bryant, and from the National Wrestling Hall of Fame's Etched in Stone series, this is Seven, the story of Olympian Gray Simons, college wrestling's only seven-time national champion. Following his unbeaten but unsuccessful second Olympic Games, Gray Simons was going to head home. Home as in Lock Haven, a place where he'd become not just a household name, but an iconic one. Hubert Jack announced he was stepping away from the head coaching position after the Bald Eagles finished second at the NAIA Championships in 1962. Charles Ridenour took over the program for one season, leading Lock Haven to its second NAIA National Championship. But it was a one-and-done for Ridenour. Coach Jack would resume head coaching duties for the 1963-64 season, which would be his last. Gray Simons would be by his side, primed to assume the role. Coach Jack called me and said, we'd like for you to come in here, middle of the year, if we can. He had retired and they, they brought in a guy that was just an asshole. That's all we can say about him and uh, didn't know anything about wrestling. But somehow he finagled them that he knew something. And uh, matter of fact, they had a couple of guys I had to get, they had quit and I had to get back. So I got out of the service when I got back, after I got back. So I got out and went up to Lock Haven, started coaching, got the guys they had quit, got them back. And this guy was, you know, I, I kept him on until the end. And, and I said, you know, you, we're not taking you to the NAIAs or NCAs. And then I think, uh, I don't know if he even taught the next year. At Lock Haven, you had to be a teacher. You couldn't just coach. Right. So I think they got rid of him. There was clearly something about Gray Simons. Having picked up on his high school coach Billy Martin's ability to adapt, coach, and teach others, Coach Hubert Jack realized Simons would be a natural at coaching and teaching. Here's teammate and 1962 national champion Jack Day on what it was like when Gray would coach his teammates during his time there as a competitor. Well, it's just like that, you know. You you would see him and he'd be gone, you know. It's just I worked out of, worked out with him many many times, and I, I I couldn't stop him. I mean, I couldn't. One time I went in there, he said, Jack, I want you to I'll never forget this. He said, Get on top of me, put 
your best pinning combination on me. And I want to see if this move will work. And the move he was showing me was a was kind of an elevator move. Tim, he just threw me off of him like I was nothing. And I said, well, let's try that again. Well, he did the same thing again. And I'll never forget it because I showed many of my wrestlers the same move, you know, and it was just a simple move, but he would, he was very mechanical. He could analyze a move and say, well, this, this is the least point of resistance. I think this is going to work. I'll never forget it. When I said, I was 147 pounder, he was a 23 pounder. I got on him. I was strong. I clamped him. And damn, if he didn't, I said, well, you can't do that again. Well, he did. About 40 minutes south of Lock Haven sits Penns Valley, Pennsylvania, childhood home to Tom Elling, one of Pennsylvania's top wrestling newsmen and historians. He was also a pretty formidable wrestler back in the day, twice placing at the NAI National Championships in 1965 and 1966. My high school coach, Les Turner, wrestled at Lock Haven. He got the program going at Mishano Valley. Uh, he, he was just, uh, he was charismatic. He volunteered to uh, help with the Boy Scouts, of which I was a member then, and he was greatly respected. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this, this guy's a great guy. I went fishing with him and everything. He, he got me into wrestling, and so I figured, why not go to Lock Haven? They have a good wrestling program. Maybe I can make the team there. My association with Gray Simons, uh, I watched him wrestle when I was in high school a few times, but I really got to know him when he became my coach at uh, Lock Haven State College, Lock Haven University now. Uh, coach Simons uh, was unique. Uh, anything he told you, he could, he could wrestle with anybody from the lightest guy all the way up to about heavyweight, uh, although Bob McDermott was a little big for him, but uh, he, he did do that. He was phenomenal, and uh, probably one of the biggest lessons I ever learned from him was uh, I was wrestling in the NAIAs, and this opponent had a great arm drag. And uh, I thought, well, I got a quick takedown. I thought, well, pretty good arm drag. I'll redrag him. So I tried to uh, put my arm up. He had me on the on my knees so quickly I didn't know what hit me. Lesson number one. Never listened to Tom Elling over Gray Simons. But uh, Gray was just a, an institution here in town. Everybody knew him. Everybody uh, across the nation knew him. I mean, he was how outstanding it was, but just a great guy. Throughout the team, excitement was building on the news Gray Simons would be coming back to Matt Town. Gray wasn't in, even in the picture in my mind then because he graduated in 62 and I was just starting to college in the fall of 62. So I never envisioned him as my coach. I assumed it would be uh, Herb Jack the whole way through. But when uh, we got word that, you know, the Gray was coming back, uh, Herb Jack had stepped down and there were a couple interim coaches. In the meantime, we heard Gray Simons was coming back. The whole team, you know, it, was, it was just electric, like we were just so so much in awe that we were going to get this great wrestler, this legend. But upon Gray Simon's return to Matt Town, he'd soon be smitten by Mary Burden, a physical education major from St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. At that time, Slippery Rock and Lock Haven were the only two schools in the Pennsylvania State College system that had that you could get a degree in uh, physical education. And actually, Lock Haven was easier to get to than Slippery Rock because we were kind of in the middle. And so that's why I went there, really. And I was glad I did. I mean, because it was a good education, although I never did teach PE. It's not like it was exactly a sparks flying love at first sight story either. Save that for the rom-coms. 
he was there and then I don't know we just met I guess everybody was kind of in awe I met him at a party I remember calling my roommate saying I met Grace Simon because she had an older sister who knew Grace Simon see at that point you know it didn't mean a whole lot to me but at Lock Haven when you saw the pictures and everything you know you kind of thought there was something special How much did the future Mary Simons know about wrestling in 1964? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Not much at all. In fact, um, St. Mary's, where I, you know, grew up and was a cheerleader and the whole bit. We did. We had a team, but it it wasn't a team that anybody really even paid much attention to. Unfortunately, I think I might might have gone to a match more out of curiosity. I don't know. But then once I got to Lock Haven. I might not have known much about wrestling, but I was a cheerleader and we were right there next to the match for those matches. I mean, it was an exciting time at Lock Haven. Every, you know, and then of course with, with Gray coming, you know, it even was more, but even before he came, of course, the wrestling there was very good and very well attended. You know, it was, well, I guess that's the whole Matt Town thing. That's when that came around. By now, we know Gray Simons is anything but boastful. But when the moment came, Mary knew how to make sure to keep him in check. People loved Gray, and I, I knew that, and I, I knew he was special. But I also knew he was a person. You know what I mean? I, you know, he was, he was a, a very nice man that I was in love with. And it didn't, you know, I didn't see that other so much as I saw other people looking at him like in fact i think i might have spent a little time then kind of bringing him down maybe <laughs> in lock haven you know with jokes and whatever in 1965 gray simon's the coach married mary burden the cheerleader in 1966 they welcomed their first child and the world followed by elliot gray simon's the third whom they'd call gray in 1967. gray and mary would have four children beth born in 1971 followed by Andy in 1977. With a room full of Coach Jack's holdovers and wrestlers he'd talk back into coming out for the squad, Gray Simon's first year as a head coach was a successful one by anyone's metric. The Bald Eagles were second at the NAIA championships, 10 points behind rival Bloomsburg, and the Bald Eagles crowned three national champions among their four All-Americans. Bill Blacksmith at 147 pounds, Frank Eisenhower at 157, and Jerry Swope at 177. Tom Elling finished sixth at 191 pounds. The title was the third for Swope, who was chasing his new coach, Gray Simons, to become the second wrestler in collegiate history to win four national championships. Swope would place fifth at the NCAA championships in 1965. Here's Tom Elling. Well, he tried to, I, was, I wrestled uh, 91 in heavyweight mostly because a guy by the name of Jerry Swope, who was a three-time uh, Division One All-American, third, fifth, and third, uh, was a 77, so I had to bump up. But what, what he, he would teach me would be like setups on my feet and misdirection and, and just different little things that uh, w- would help me a lot. Uh, on the bottom, he tried to get me to Granby Roll, but, but I was going against... Uh, much bigger guys, so I, I really wasn't comfortable going across my shoulders like that, and so I did a little modification that he showed me instead of a Granby roll, it was like a, a cross leg and, and then uh, 
roll out of that. But I, I mainly use the stand-up. So you knew that if, if he told you something, even if you were out on the mat wrestling, that, that it was there. You had that kind of faith in the guy. In 1966, the NAIA National Championship returned to Matttown as Lockhaven put 10 wrestlers on the podium and scored a then-tournament record 107 points, outdistancing second-place Moorhead State by 43 points in the tournament held in St. Cloud, Minnesota. The 43-point gap was another record that wouldn't be broken in the NAIA until 1981. That season was also the first of three years where college wrestling tournaments competed in 11 weight classes. The 1966 team featured national champions Bill and Jim Blacksmith and Jerry Swope, who would win his fourth NAIA championship. Bill Blacksmith would become Simon's first NCAA champion, winning at 145 pounds. Blacksmith came in unseated and opened up with a 10-2 win over Portland State's Freeman Garrison. He followed with a 5-0 quarterfinal upset over top-seeded Jim Rogers of Oklahoma State. In the semis, Blacksmith would again win 5-0, this time over fourth-seeded Bob Robbins of Army. In the finals, Blacksmith's hand would be raised yet again in victory after a 7-1 win over Iowa State's Dale Barr. Jerry Swope would finish his career with a third-place finish at the NCAA tournament at 177 pounds, falling only to eventual champion Tom Peckham of Iowa State 6-0 in the semifinals. Tiny Lockhaven finished seventh at the NCAA championship, tied with conference comrade East Stroudsburg. It was the third time the Bald Eagles had finished in the top 10 at the NCAA tournament. In 1967, it'd be another team championship, this time one on the home mats at Lockhaven. The Bald Eagles outdistanced Adams State from Colorado 80-69. Seven more Bald Eagles would hit the podium, with 115-pounder Ken Melchior claiming gold. Simons would hoist his second team championship in as many years, and Lockhaven won its fourth NAIA title in seven years. Over in Western PA, childhood friend and high school and collegiate teammate Fred Powell took over at Slippery Rock starting what would be a decades-long coaching battle between the pair of Granby High School alumni. It was a coaching rivalry that would last into the early 1990s. Here's Fred Powell. When you look across the mat and you see who's sitting in that chair over there, and you're trying to think, you go, okay, I, I know what he knows, and he knows what I know, uh, the athletes. So, you know, we didn't get a, a at Lock Haven and at Slippery Rock, we didn't get a lot of state champions. I probably only had maybe three or four state champions that came out for Slippery Rock that I could recruit and and almost the whole time that I was coaching there. But he had a a chance to recruit some good guys from from Long Island, as I did, and some pretty good ones from Lock Haven. But he didn't have a lot of money, and I didn't have a lot of money for for scholarships. So when I'm looking across the way, I'm just, you know, great respect. But on the other hand, hey, I'm going to do my best to teach my guy to, to beat your guy and sometime I win and sometime I lose. But when it's all over, we get together and we play tennis and we uh, meet at the beach. And, you know, every time I go down to Virginia Beach, we had my wife and I have uh, dinner with Mary and Gray. And we've been such good friends. We bite together. We just share a lot of common interest. But the competition across the mat, it was one of those things that, you know, something would happen. Only one time did he yell at me when our guy was trying to counter his, his underhook series. I, I got a little rough with one of my guys against his guy, and he called me down on it, and, hey, you can't do that. And the official said, yeah, he's right. That's a little unnecessary roughness. I went, oh, well, that's the only way I knew how to counter it. <laughs> 
Simon's first three years saw a national runner-up finish, two national titles, two conference titles, and a 31-4 dual meet mark. The 1968 squad went 11-1 in duels and finished second to East Stroudsburg in the Pennsylvania State Athletic Conference. The Bald Eagles finished a disappointing seventh in 1968 at the NAIA Championships with only two All-Americans, Ken Melchior and Jim Blacksmith. The NCAA Championships, however, ended up being a bit of a silver lining as both Melchior and Blacksmith placed there as well, with Melchior becoming Simon's second NCAA champion with a title at 115 pounds. The Bald Eagles would also finish seventh at the NCAA Championships. But March of 1968 was also very interesting for the Simons family. Oklahoma State head coach Myron Roderick paid Simons a visit prior to the Nationals at Penn State and inquired if Gray would be interested in taking over Oklahoma State. Myron Roderick was only 33 years old at the time, but had been the head coach in Stillwater since he was 22. Gray was 28 years old at the time. Both Gray and Mary Simons were hesitant about the opportunity. Here's Mary. When the Nationals were at Penn State, he came over to Lock Haven and visited. And he told Gray that he was going to retire. And did he want to think about, you know, did he want to come to Oklahoma State? And I said to Gray, there is no, well, look at him. He's so young. There's no way he's going to retire. But he did. Well, I felt the same way Mary did, you know, that uh, Roderick, uh, you know, like me, you know, and everything. And like what, what I did, but going to Oklahoma State, it's it was a whole different thing. And. I thought I would be under a lot of pressure. That wasn't, I didn't think it would be worth it. And Mary didn't, and Mary didn't think he would retire, so. But Roderick did retire at the end of the 1969 season. And the Cowboys hired Tommy Chesbro, who coached Oklahoma State from 1970 to 1984, winning one NCAA championship. Even with the ability to beat up every single wrestler in his room, top to bottom, Gray passed on making another run at the Olympics. Teaching at Lock Haven and coaching, along with having two young children at home, the time commitment away from his responsibilities in Matttown was just too great. Here's Fred Powell. He was known to be the best 118-pounder in the country, and there was no one else to match him uh, to, to make two Olympic teams. He could have made a third Olympic team, but he, he decided that he did not want to give up his time with his team because he could have been on the Olympic team when they went to Mexico City. Uh, he could have probably won the, the gold medal. In 1969, Lockhaven would finish third at the NAIA Championships with a national champion and five more All-Americans. In 1970, the Bald Eagles finished in the top 10, but seventh place wasn't the bar in Matttown. The two All-Americans, though, were national champions. The power in the NAIA had shifted to the West. But there was also a shift coming in Lockhaven, and Gray Simons wasn't happy. Simons started losing recruits to in-state schools. Lockhaven native Gary Cook wanted to come, but ended up at East Stroudsburg. Others who were trying to get into Lockhaven, but didn't come for one reason or another, included Billy Martin Jr., son of Gray's high school coach, Billy Martin, and a two-time Virginia high school state champion. And perhaps the straw that broke the camel's back the most was a prolific pinner and Pennsylvania state champion from Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, named Wade Chalice. It has been reported how much truth is here. I don't know uh, that Billy Martin Jr. wanted to go there, was rejected. Donnie Roan was rejected. Bill Simpson was rejected. John Fritz and Jeff Baum were re declined. Now, how many of them that was true or not? Back then, Lockhaven used to think of themselves as being 
the Harvard on the Susquehanna. And they were really tight about letting people in. And because they, they were they had their noses in the air academically, they, they thought they were the number one state school. True, true or false, I don't know, but whatever. And I wanted to go there because I only lived a little over an hour away from Lock Haven. And Gray's reputation was larger than life. You know, that was my first choice, you know. And uh, but anyhow, so I didn't end up there. As good as Lockhaven was on the mats, the wrestlers had to work hard, not just on the mats and in the classroom, but around town, as Lockhaven didn't have any scholarship money. Here's Gray. Didn't have any scholarships. You know, we found people jobs and stuff, and but we, we had no scholarships at Lockhaven. At that time, now they do. You know, we get them, some of them, you know, were, were poor enough, they got money through the federal government or a scholarship plan but we really didn't have any scholarships. Being the son of Gray Simons High School coach, Billy Martin Jr. had obviously known Gray Simons for quite a while. A big part of why he was considering going to Lock Haven. Well, I got to know him a little bit better than most because he would come back and work out and during the holidays, and I was in high school. I was in high school when he was coming back after the, his Olympics and he was coaching at Lock Haven. He would st still come back in the holidays and would work out and, and roll around in the room. So trying, trying to recruit at the same time, I believe. <laughs> Unbelievable uh, coach. And I was looking at going there, but I think I was having problems with the money issue. They wouldn't, but they didn't want to give you any money. First of all, I was like probably one of the top, I was, if I wasn't in the top recruit in the country, I, I think I was right up there in the top several because I just won the junior worlds my, that summer, my junior year in high school. And then 70 was my senior year. Prior to the NCAA three-division structure we know today, Wade Chalice won two college division championships and two university division championships in his college career at Clarion, not at Lockhaven. Even over 50 years later, Chalice still believes Gray Simons was the best technical mind of the era. He took that system to Lockhaven. And as a, as a coach, I believe he was the Kale Sanderson of today of back then he took care of his kids he was above reproach uh socially ethically cared for and he had his own routine you know he was dis disciplined and structured as an instructor and he learned that i believe obviously from billy martin senior on how to organize and run practices he would be the first one in your corner at all times he was he believed in drilling which is a Billy Martinism. He believed in, you know, technically he was light years. In the 60s, he was the man technically in America. With the opportunity at Oklahoma State gone two years earlier, Indiana State head coach Chuck Sanders approached Gray Simons about the post he was about to vacate after a 10-year run leading the Sycamore wrestling program. Compound that with Lockhaven's perceived stinginess on acceptance, Gray Simons had an easy decision to make one few saw coming. You know, what disturbed me was Wade Chalice was a senior in high school, wanted to come to Lock Haven. They wouldn't accept him. You know, even if he went to summer school, they wouldn't accept him. And uh, it really pissed me off. So I took the Indiana State job. So one of the men who made Matt Town was leaving. 
after leading the Bald Eagles to a pair of NAI national championships, winning 30 NAI medals and 11 national titles to go along with two individual NCAA championships. Ray Simons headed west. Lockhaven's proud wrestling program would not maintain the success it saw under Coach Hubert Jack and Gray Simons. The Bald Eagles wouldn't finish in the top 10 of a National Wrestling Collegiate Tournament again until 27 years later, when they finished fifth at the 1997 Division I Championships. While college realignment has changed the landscape of college sports here in the present day, it was also happening back then, too, when the NCAA incorporated a divisional structure, establishing scholarship and non-scholarship divisions, the college and university championships had new identities and new competition standards. Qualifying tournaments would be held, and NCAA Division I, II, and III would formally be introduced for the 1973-74 season. In 1970, Indiana State would join the short-lived Midwestern Conference, which was comprised of Indiana State, Ball State, Illinois State, Northern Illinois, and Southern Illinois. The conference lasted until the 1972-73 season, but with the new structure in Division I, Indiana State would qualify wrestlers through regionals, which are comprised of schools not in wrestling qualifiers like the Big Ten, ACC, or EIWA. Mary remembers the transition, having two kids and one on the way. And that was, that was it. So then we went to Indiana State, and it was major. It was major because for me, I was leaving home, you know. And we had Ann and Gray, and then I was pregnant with Beth. So when we went out there... It was, um, but you know who was helpful? Bobby Ferraro. And he was there. And his brother, Eddie, they came. He, they were, they were real helpful. You know, and then, they, and then Donnie Faye and Kathy came out and he was Gray's assistant. And that was really good for me because, but then we just, you know, God, we, we lived in, in the married student housing for a year, and then we bought a house, and we were in a neighborhood, and it was all, it was good. It was very good. We made good friends there that we have still uh, kept up with. Gray was instrumental in helping his high school coach, Billy Martin Sr., build and develop what we know now today as the Granby School of Wrestling a wildly successful camp that teaches the techniques the elder Martin developed during his years of coaching at Granby. Working with the wrestling teams in camps also helped Gray stay sharp. Wayne Martin, one of Billy Martin Sr.'s sons, recalls a time where Gray, almost eight years retired from competition, was laying it on his brother Billy Jr. and World Olympic silver medalist Don Beam. I mean, when they came to wrestling camp, you know, they, were, they, they came for two people, Billy Martin Sr. and Gray Simons. When, we, when Dad first started the camp back in 1966, and that was a draw. And I mean, and Gray, you know, Gray was at his his peak. I mean, I know he, he made the 60 and 64 Olympic teams, but I'm going to tell you what, in 1971, the summer of 1971, the Grammy School of Wrestling at the Chamberlain Hotel in, in Fort Monroe in Hampton is where we had camp. And that was a year before the 72 Olympics. And my brother, Billy, who was, he, he went to, he was a Grammy High School state champ and he was a 1969 junior world champion, and he hadn't yet gone to college. In 72, right during the Olympics, he, he ended up enrolling in Oklahoma State. But he was also training for the Olympics. So he took two years off after high school, and he was kind of training for the Olympics. And he drained, trained a lot with Don Bean. Of course, we know Bean, 64 silver medalist, and then 72, he got beat off the team by Rick Sanders. And so Bean was with us at camp that year at the Chamberlain Hotel, getting ready you know, leading up to the 72 trials and making the, you know, trying to make the team, 
you know, and he was tough as hell. He really came down to work out with Billy because my brother Billy was also training, you know, getting ready for college, but also had thoughts, you know, he was a freestyle wrestler. And, of course, Gray was there. And so they would all work out together on the seventh floor of the Chamberlain Hotel in this huge suite that overlooked the bay. It was a beautiful setting. And we had like three wrestling mats up there. And to get the mats up to the top of the seventh floor, Jason, we had to snake those things up a spiral staircase to the seventh floor. So you had to roll them instead of the short way. And these were resolites. I mean, you know how much a one roll of a resolite mat that weighs. They, we'd roll it the long ways, and they'd snake it up like a daggone snake all the way up to the seventh floor. And so, make a long story short, you know, Ray would work out with Billy and Don Bean, and he he just beat them to death. They couldn't score in the guy. And I mean, we're talking 1971, so it's you know he's ten years out of his competition days. Well, you know, about about seven years out of the Olympics, and he was as good as anybody in the world. He he probably was good enough. And my brother's eyes, he said, Gray Simons is the toughest guy I've ever wrestled in my life. And he could go with Beam, and he could go with Rick Sanders, because Sanders would come to our farm and work out and train with us for a while. And he even came to our camp the year before that in 1970. But, um, yeah, Gray Simons would just go in there and to totally just beat, beat the mess out of all of them. They, none of them would score on Gray, and Gray could take them down almost at will. It was just amazing to watch that. And, um, and, of course, Gray was content then. He was in college. He was coaching and, and all that type of stuff. But, God, you talk about an athlete. He was, he, he was just great. He was just great and, and, and a great competitor. Just over 600 miles from Lock Haven, Indiana State was in Terre Haute, Indiana, which later in the decade would be famous for one gangly blonde-haired kid from French Lick, Indiana named Larry Bird. But Indiana was basketball crazy. Pennsylvania was wrestling crazy. Here's Gray explaining the difference between Lockhaven and Indiana State. You know, I'd coached at West Point, too. You know, I'd been in that arena before Division I schools. And, and we, had, uh, we had some good wrestlers at Indiana State. And Bob Ferraro was my assistant coach. You know, he'd, he'd wrestle at Indiana State. He'd, so, um, you know, there's, we had some good wrestlers and stuff. But it wasn't, uh, wasn't the same as Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a pretty special place for wrestling. Gray went 42-21 and 21 in five seasons, a modest dual record. But he was also devoid of an All-American finish in that same span for the only time in his coaching career. He had 19 wrestlers qualify for the championships. Three would be seated. Bill Osborne, Bill Sweet, and David Martin, one of Billy Martin Sr.'s sons. Martin lost in the round to place in 1972, as did Greg Archer in 1974. Larry Bird enrolled in 1975, and the rest there is history. But always connected, Billy Martin Sr. gave Gray Simons a call about another opportunity. Coach Mark Gummy says, you know, Gray, Joe's leaving Tennessee, and that could be a good place for you. I said, okay, I'll go down and look at it. I went down. I thought, you know, there's a lot of potential here. And um, Joe had recruited some good kids. Joe, Joe's a pretty good talker. <laughs> Mary has a vivid memory of how this unfolded. Mr. Uh, Coach Woodruff, I actually think he might have called Mr. Martin because then he called Gray. Because we were at camp and we were here and so he went over to Tennessee 
because I was at, um, you know, his brother, Wayne and Norma and I, and the kids, we were all at their house. And Greg called and he said, you know, Wayne and I were all excited. Oh gosh, University of Tennessee. And uh, he called and he said, do you like the color orange? And I said, well, I don't know. I have never really thought about it. And he said, you're going to learn to love it. <laughs> and that was the decision. It was made. So from there, we went, we were here. And of course, we were living in Indiana. So we drove. I don't think we even went by Pennsylvania. I think we just drove and we planned on stopping somewhere in Ohio to spend the night. This was camp was over, you know. But whatever, we ended camp. We didn't leave in the middle of anything. But anyway, we couldn't get a place to stay because of the Ohio State Fair. So we had to drive on home. And we got home about two o'clock in the morning. We just carried everybody into their beds and got in bed, didn't unload the car or anything. And at nine o'clock in the morning, the phone rang and somebody wanted to buy our house. I'm like, well, wait a minute. And <laughs> It, had, it was in the Sunday paper. That was a Sunday. And it was in the Sunday paper that Grace Simons was leaving and going to Tennessee. <laughs> On the next episode of Seven. That's the one that, you know, of all the places, had the best chance to, to be a powerhouse. Grace, I'm going to tell you a story. He's gonna just be honest and say, this is this is what we have. I thought, when I recruit, I gotta make sure people know that we want them to come to Tennessee. Went head first into a, a hill. The car rolled over three or four times. He, he's about chain wrestling. He doesn't do one move. He teaches five moves. What if the guy moves that leg back and then that one and then this one and that one? Seven is a presentation of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in Stillwater, Oklahoma. This episode is written and produced by Jason Bryant. Historical research provided in part by Wrestlers at the Trials by James V. Moffitt, Amateur Wrestling News, and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame.